Demonstrate your ways, O eternal one. Teach me to understand so I can follow and ease me down the path of your truth. Feed me your word because you are the true God who has saved me. I wait all day long, hoping, trusting in you. Gracious, eternal one, remember your compassion, rekindle your concern and love, which has always been part of your actions towards those who are yours. Do not hold against me the sins I committed when I was young. Instead, deal with me according to your mercy and love. Then your goodness may be demonstrated in all of the world, eternal one. Immensely good and honorable is the eternal. That's why he teaches sinners the way. With justice he directs the humble in all that is right. And he shows them his way. Kind and true are the ways of the eternal to the people who keep his covenant and his words. Lord, the eternal, bring glory to your name. And forgive my sins because they are beyond number. May anyone who fears the eternal be shown the path he should choose. His soul will not only live in goodness, but his children will inherit the land. Only those who stand in all the eternal will have intimacy with him and he will reveal his covenant to them perpetually. My focus takes me to the eternal because he will set me free from the traps laid for me. Quietly turn your eyes to me and be compassionate toward me because I am lonely and persecuted. Rapidly my heart beats as troubles build on the horizon and come relieve me from these threats. See my trouble and my misery and forgive all my sins. Take notice of my enemies. See how there are so many of them who hate me and would seek my violent destruction. Watch over my soul and let, my, let me face shame and defeat unashamed because you are my refuge. May honor and strong character keep me safe. Vigilantly I wait for you, hoping, trusting, save Israel from all its troubles, O oh, true God. Lord, there are trials that trouble us. Though devoted to you, we still suffer distress. Yet we can say with confidence, our trust is in you, our hope is in you, our refuge is in you. Why? Because your mercy and love are older than the hills. You are good, you are upright, you are faithful. So show us your ways, O Lord, teach us your paths make clear how to live with hope in these hopeless times. Again, our trust is in you. Our hope is in you. Our refuge is in you. Amen. So be it. I love this psalm, Psalm 25, because it is a microcosm of the spiritual journey. It's a type of song that we call a petition song. And in these types of songs, we see a formula at work 
the psalmist here standing for all of us, becomes aware of his or her need for salvation or deliverance or for healing. And she or he becomes aware of God's love and offered salvation. She or he then accepts that offered salvation and now lives in a newfound hope and finds themselves on what McLaren has been calling in this series a path to new aliveness. And today we continue our path to aliveness by looking at the uprising of discipleship. You see, it's not enough to join in relationship with Jesus through the uprising of fellowship, which Jeff addressed last week. But our relationship with Jesus must lead us into a new and transformative way of living. A life that Jesus promised us that would be an eternal life, or as Dallas Willard puts it, a life for the ages. And of course, when we're talking about this idea of an uprising of discipleship, we need to examine what that word itself means. What is discipleship? Well, it is what it has meant all along. It is to be a follower. It is to be a student, an apprentice, one who learns by imitating a master. You see, the revolutionary plan of discipleship that Jesus offers us means that we must first and foremost... Be examples. We must embody the message and the values of our movement. And that doesn't mean that you and or I are perfect. But it does mean that we are growing and learning. That we're always humble and willing to get up again after we fall. Always moving forward on the road we are walking. And as Jesus modeled never-ending learning and growth for us, we will model that for others who will model it for still others. You see, if each new generation of disciples follows this example, centuries from now, if the Lord tarries, apprentices will still be learning the way of Jesus from mentors so that they can become mentors for the following generation. Persago didn't invent this form of leadership. Uh, Jesus models it and embodies it. And that's what we're looking to do. I want to be right from the front. I want to give uh, honor where honor is due and say that in talking about what we're going to talk about today, I'm indebted to two important works. One is a commentary on the Gospel of John by Merrill C. Tinney. I urge you, if you're interested in that gospel of the beloved, to check that out. And then also, uh, as we look at the story of Luke, you uh, need to know that Joel Green is a very important figure in uh, New Testament scholarship. And uh, we'll be borrowing heavily from him. So, today we're going to examine the two passages that are assigned us in this chapter of We Make the Road by Walking, our lectionary by Brian McLaren. And these passages hopefully will both inform and inspire us as it relates to following Jesus and becoming like him. We'll begin with John 21, which is a very interesting 
story. Already it's been alluded to a couple of times. And then we'll inspect Luke chapter 10 um, for truths regarding this meaning of discipleship. And just want to say today's going to be more of a teaching and walking through um, the verses and the passages um, than maybe uh, you're accustomed to, but but that's just kind of what felt like fit with this. So the first passage we're looking at again is John 21. We're looking at verses 1 through 15, and it's an epilogue of sorts to John's story of Jesus. It's a bookend of the life of the disciples with Jesus. If you remember, Jesus begins his ministry by calling 12 disciples, 12 ordinary men from different walks of life. And Peter among them is a fisherman who Jesus in his invitation to be a disciple and an apostle and follow his way uh, calls not to be a fisherman, but instead a fisher of men. This passage describes... A uh, portion of the twelve disciples, or seven of them, five mentioned, two not, most likely the core of the twelve, who just shared experiences of the Passion Week and had traveled together back to their home country of Galilee. The last week in Jerusalem had been a trying and confusing period in the lives of these men. In the space of a few days, they had received more teaching from Jesus than their immature spiritual state could assimilate. They had seen their hopes of an outward kingdom shattered. One of their own number had betrayed Jesus to the chief priests, and all of them had forsaken him as he went to the cross. In two or three hours, they had been reduced from the position of disciples of an honored and popular teacher to that of hunted partisans of a discredited imposter. And then, in addition to all of these happenings, came the resurrection, with the startling appearances and unmistakable proof that Jesus had risen, had risen indeed. So with these occurrences fresh in their memories, the disciples withdrew to Galilee. In Jerusalem, they had been in a strange city where unnerving events had followed each other with dizzying rapidity. Perhaps they questioned whether these events were real or whether they had been dreaming. Galilee, however, was the same. The familiar haunts, the sights and smells of the fishing boats, rocking gently on the lake. Again, that smell of the fish and the pressing need of food. And occupation brought them to a crisis. They could not afford to mope over vanished hope or to speculate idly on what might have been. Peter, the spokesman of the group as usual, impetuous Peter, says, I'm going to go fishing. And the rest assented. Practical actions, it seems, were the cure for the mystification and disappointment that had plagued them. And it's important to point out here that while there is no indication from this passage or from the biblical author that Peter or Simon's proposal was sinful, we do need to take note that it was dangerous. It was dangerous because Jesus had trained these men for something besides fishing. 
And considering the tremendous upheaval through which their minds have passed, their actions were excusable because they needed to forget what they had been through. These were men of the dirt, of clay, of fishing. They needed to feel what it was to have rugged joy of hard work so they could let their minds settle and rest. However, by concentrating on their livelihood, they might forget the life to which Jesus had spoken. And so they needed to be recalled to it. The manifestation of Jesus was then to call a new reality, just as he had once before given them a large catch of fish earlier in the gospel accounts when he summoned them to become his disciples. So he repeated the miracle under similar circumstances. The account tells us that at dawn, after a night of fruitless toil, a voice held them from the shore. Boys! You had not had anything to eat now, have you? question implied a knowledge they had no results and that the questioner was interested. And perhaps they thought that this is a buyer from one of the nearby cities. He wanted to view their catch and give them money for their wares. And they replied to him, no, we haven't caught anything. Then the voice came again. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you shall find... Now. This procedure for numerous reasons was unorthodox in time of the fishing, but the men were desperate enough to try anything. And when they cast that net, they were rewarded with a catch so great that they could not put it in the boat. And immediately, the disciple grasped what had happened as he had done when he saw the grave clothes and said, It is the Lord. This time, the manifestation of Christ's appearance had not occurred in the strange surroundings of Jerusalem under circumstances so unusual as to make them wonder to whether or not it was a dream. In this instance, in this point, what we need to know is that the risen Lord demonstrated His presence and His power in their own familiar surroundings while they were engaged in their everyday occupation. There could be no doubt about the voice, nor about the fish, nor about his presence. The resurrection reality fitted into the pattern of their everyday experiences. So often when we are seeking transformation, when we are looking to what it means to be a disciple, we're looking for the extraordinary. We're looking for God to show up in a way that is miraculous and that is mystifying or mystical. A way that will bring us to our knees in adulation and in adoration. But all those who have followed Jesus closely through the years understand this key truth. It is a rare thing for God to appear in the spectacular. And if we fashion our ears to hear and our eyes to see, only in that incredulity, oftentimes we'll find ourselves wanting. The goal of the disciple is to not experience the miraculous 
in absurd ways, but to experience the miraculous in the everyday. Uh, we've mentioned it many, many times in here. The earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. Only those who see take off their shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. The goal is to fashion our eyes as such that when we're going about our everyday occupation and business, when we're disciplining our children, <laughs> when we're at work punching the clock, when we're hiking at Deep Creek, when we're eating at Jimmy Max. I would like to recommend the Hawaiian burger. When we're doing those things, God is ever speaking to us if we have but ears to hear. And Jesus is saying to the disciples at this point, you've had a really crazy ride for three years. <laughs> We've seen some stuff go down. But what I'm saying to you is you return to normal patterns of life and to the familiar that I'm still here with you. So this is that epilogue that John's talking about. That the resurrection reality fits into the pattern of our everyday experience. I love the fact, Jody mentioned it the other day to me, uh, that... When we look at these passages, there's a theme in uh, the appearances, materializations of the post-resurrection Christ to the disciples. That whether it's the two guys on the way to Emmaus or it's here, there's often Jesus appearing to people and they don't recognize him at first until he breaks bread with them. Until they have fish for breakfast, which is a little weird. But... There's nothing as ordinary and as common and as mundane as eating. And yet it's at the table. The most basic of practices that we all engage in that Jesus reveals himself. It's that relational piece. So what I want to do for just a couple of minutes here is turn our attention to this second passage assigned in this week's chapter it's in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and it's the story of Jesus sending out the 70 or 72. And I'm going to share just some interesting pieces, kind of verse by verse here. And, uh, let me go ahead and read it for us first, though. The Lord then recruited and deployed 70. Some translations, older translations perhaps, more 70 more disciples, or 72 disciples. He sent them ahead in teams of two to visit all the towns and settlements between them and Jerusalem. And this is what he ordered. Jesus says, there's a great harvest wedding in the fields, but there aren't many good workers to harvest it. Pray that the harvest master will send out good workers to the fields. It's time for you 70 to go. I'm sending you out armed with vulnerability, like lambs walking into packs of wolves. Don't bring a wallet. Don't carry a backpack. I don't even want you to wear sandals. Walk along barefoot quietly without stopping for small talk. When you enter a house seeking lodging, say peace on this house. If a child of peace, one who welcomes God's message of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, don't worry, nothing's wasted. Stay where you're welcomed. Become part of the family, eating and drinking whatever they give you. You're my workers and you deserve to be cared for. 
Again, don't go from house to house, but settle down in a town and eat whatever they serve you. Heal the sick and say to the townspeople, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now, of course, not every town will welcome you. If you're rejected, walk through the streets and say, we're leaving this town. We'll wipe off, we'll wipe off the dust that clings to our feet and protest against you. But even so, even so, know that the kingdom of God has come near. And then picking up in verse 17 through 20, when the 70 completed their mission and returned to report on their experiences, they were elated. The 70, it's amazing, Lord. When we use your name, the demons do what we say. Jesus, I know, I saw Satan falling from above like a lightning bolt. I've given you true authority. You can smash vipers and scorpions under your feet. You can walk all over the power of the enemy. You can't be harmed. But listen, that's not the point. Don't be elated that evil spirits leave when you say to leave. Rejoice instead that your names are written in heaven or the Lamb's book of life. Very interesting passage. So we're looking at John where we see a book in. Jesus calls the disciples from fishermen to become fishers of men. We have this period of three years of walking with Jesus and being disciples. The resurrections happen, the, the, the cross first, and then the resurrection. Disciples are uh, mystified. They're a little unsettled, so they head back to their comfortable, well-known haunts, Galilee. And there they come in contact with Jesus again. And Jesus is almost uh, reissuing the initial call and saying, Hey, I'm here with you. Uh, your mission is that to be fishers of men. So don't forget that. But in the middle, what does it mean? What have they experienced as disciples? And this passage is pretty important. It's not just the 12 who Jesus is talking to, but now Jesus is sending out at this period of time 72, 70 uh, different uh, followers of Jesus uh, to proclaim the message. So let's look at this. In verses 1 and 2, we see a couple of important insights. Again, most translations, instead of 70, will have 72 as the number of people he sent out. And this number has a lot of import. In Genesis 10, the number of the nations of the world is 72. In Third Enoch, a piece of the uh, Apocrypha, the number of princes and languages of the world is 72. According to legend, uh, in the uh, epistle of Aristeus, it was 72 elders who were commissioned to translate the law from Hebrew to Greek. It was a project undertaken to win renown throughout the whole world for the Jews and their God. And so accordingly, this number of 72 can be understood as prefiguring the universal mission that is Jesus reaching the whole world for the kingdom of heaven, establishing the realm of God on earth. 72 are sent to prepare the way for Jesus in the kingdom of God. And they're also prepared in a practical sense to be workers and laborers in the harvest. When Jesus is telling this tale and when this is happening, that agrarian image of the harvest would be ubiquitous. It would be everywhere. See, once the harvest uh, was in, the laborers might only have weeks or they might even only have days to bring that harvest in. And thus, when Jesus sends these 72 out, it's a welcome because those extra laborers would be uh, needed. And uh, there's a deeper meaning in reality here that says this. There should be an urgency to our task. 
when we're talking about establishing the realm of God in this place, when we're talking about what it means to bring the kingdom of heaven to Bryson City, there should be something in us that is single-minded and dedicated to that task. This is not something we do half-heartedly. Remember, when Jesus calls us, Jesus' call is always high challenge and high invitation. It's whosoever will, but it's also take up your cross and follow me. Jesus asks for us to be all in, and that's what's happening here. There's an urgency. When we pick it up in verses 3 and 4, We see that Jesus is now telling these disciples, welcome from everyone you encounter cannot be assumed. He talks about the fact that the disciples, these 72, are to be going and and not preparing. They're, They're not to take their wallet. They're not to take a staff. They're not to even wear shoes. In other words, they're vulnerable. And this is a foreshadowing of the way of Jesus. Verses 5 and 7, what we're talking about here is peace. And peace is a metonym for salvation. And it's used a lot in this Gospel of Luke. A metonym, just to refresh your grammar, is a word, name, or expression used as a substitute for something else with which it is closely associated. For example, Washington is a metonym for the federal government of the U.S. A suit is a metonym for a business executive, and the track is a metonym for horse racing. The idea here is that peace, when he says, speak peace to them, bring peace to them, peace is what salvation entails. It is the realm of God. Now, what's interesting is in this particular context, in that Greco-Roman world, Peace meant the absence of war. It meant social discord was not around, and it meant that there was no sedition. But peace is understood in the Old Testament or Jewish Bible as not so much the absence of the before mentioned, but instead its presence. It's the presence of shalom, of communal well-being. It's the presence of euphoria. It's the The presence of security and of plenty and the like. Listen closely to what we can take from this. And that is the gospel was never meant to be an avoidance of anything. But instead a welcoming of something. And that something is an invitation to the new path of aliveness. If you're going forward with the gospel, it's mostly about an avoidance. You're missing the point. So long Jesus has been regulated to a get out of hell free card. And instead, the risen Messiah is inviting us to walk a life that is a life for the ages. We don't avoid. We welcome Peace is the common greeting by these Israelites, but verse 6, just more is at stake here. Verses 5 and 6, whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house. And if a child of peace is there, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. What's interesting here is peace is portrayed not merely as something one might wish for another, but as an entity that can be transmitted and possessed 
or returned. If you get anything out of today, it's this. If we're going to be disciples of Christ, if we're going to be followers of the way, if we're going to be ambassadors or emissaries to the realm of God being made manifest in this here and this now and this place, we're to be children and people of peace. We're to be children. We're to be people who are safety, our refuge. Think with me, if you will, to that one person you know in your life. Hopefully, everybody's got someone. I know I have a few. That in your deepest, darkest hour, in your most prevailing moments, in those times when the world is flipped upside down, you can rely on that person to be a safe place. This is who we're intended to be. As people of Christ, as members of the grove, our job is to be people of peace. Oasises, groves, refuges, where people find solace and comfort. Yes, yes, challenged when that's appropriate to be who we were created to be, but But first and foremost, that this is a place of acceptance and belonging. That's what Jesus' message was about. It was very interesting. You didn't jump through hoops to start relationship with Jesus. You you enter relationship. Whosoever will. But then, by being with Jesus, you were deeply challenged to not be left the same. We've got that reversed in so many ways in our Christian culture. We want to change people before we actually enter into true, authentic relationship with them. That's just not the way Jesus did it. And then Jesus goes on to talk about extending this gospel of peace and those who receive this message of peace are receiving not only this message, but they're receiving Jesus. And in turn, as receiving Jesus, they are receiving God, uh, the Father. Jesus goes on to say that they're going to be curing the sick, which in this gospel of Luke means that there is a ministry of restoration that is happening. Um, And that here, even if the kingdom hasn't appeared in fullness yet, the clear focus is the presence of God's saving activity in the mission of Jesus is being perpetuated through those of us who follow in his name. So let me summarize this just for a moment. What do we learn from this piece? And there's so much more that we can unpack, but we don't have time. Take me to coffee. What does it mean to be a disciple? Well, as disciples of Jesus, we're following in his way. And following in his way is that we are to be ambassadors to the whole of the world. That God is on our side. Broken, destitute. God is with us. There's no way that we can earn God's love. We can either accept it or reject it. But God's love is available to us all.
as disciples of Christ, as followers of his, there's an urgency in our mission. And this mission is to convey peace. Not an avoidance, but an invitation to begin the journey on this path to aliveness. I want to conclude with this story that rocked my world. And some of you who've been around me for a little while have heard it. I grew up, as many of us did, with a Harry Potter sorting hats kind of faith. Which was, who's destined for heaven and who's destined... For hell is the whole point. Everything focused around heaven or hell. And while it wasn't clearly stated this way, at least in my small understanding as a husky young boy from Alabama, heaven resembled that opening room in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. And hell was eternal conscious torture. And so my zeal of being a disciple of Christ was to make sure I was good. That if the rapture happened, I wouldn't be left behind, which I was pretty sure was going to happen. And that I knew when I died, as some of our Persago friends heard on the trail, this question posed to them. If you were to die today, would you be in heaven or would you be in hell? How do you know? In, in our particular instance, it was, if you got in your car tonight and was in a car wreck, I'll never forget a guy named Roosevelt Hunter, a pastor, preacher, who once said, uh, you've heard it said, what if you get in your car? But I've been reading the Old Testament recently, and what if God just strikes you dead right here and right now? Where are you going? Heaven or hell? I'm like, well, that's kind of weird if God strikes you anyway. Very confusing. But I remember uh, being in an evangelistic work of the church class, and I had a professor who was a missionary in South Africa. And uh, he recounted his story being in South Africa and being very dismayed as a young missionary that the other missionaries in the surrounding area didn't work near his heart. They just did. And it bothered him. Because there was an urgency to get everyone out of hell and everyone into heaven. That was possible. And he said there was only one other missionary couple that really, it was difficult to keep up with them. With their uh, busyness, with their activity, with their urgency in sharing the gospel of the good news of Jesus. He said, but what perturbed him and what mystified him was that they were Seventh-day Adventists. And according to this, they don't believe in hell. So finally, one day, he he scheduled a meeting with this Seventh-day Adventist missionary. And he says, hey, listen, first of all, I just want to say thank you for the work you're doing. Second of all, you're the only person in this country who challenges me as a missionary to be as involved as you are. But I'm really curious. You're not telling people the story of Jesus to save them from hell. So why are you so... Passionate? Why are you so zealous? Why are you so active? He says, the missionary looked at him and he says, Well, it's true I may not believe in hell. What I do know is what Jesus has meant to me. 
And my passion and my zeal comes from the fact that I don't want anyone to go another moment without the abiding, close presence of Jesus in their life. At some point, as disciples, as followers of Jesus, we need to make it our chief goal to be people of peace. To proclaim that God is on your side. And in the person of Jesus, you have life for the ages here and now, as well as for eternity. My question to you today is this. And we'll conclude with this. Where are you right now in your everyday 24-7 life needed to be a person of peace? How are you being a refuge, a safe place for those around you. Are you aware that the risen Christ is in your everyday life, in the mundane? Jesus appears magnificent. With the gospel, Christ ties the eternal to the everyday. How are you responding with an urgency to make sure that every moment of your life is infused with the presence of peace? God, we thank you that you are not far off. We thank you that we do not have to determine who is worthy of your gospel of peace and your salvation and who is not. All have the opportunity to understand that the kingdom is at hand. And that the invitation and offer and challenge to follow you is readily available for all. God, as we seek to be transformed and to become like you, may we study your ways. May we devote ourselves to your ways. May we understand that if we want to be like you, we have to do the things that you did. May we as a church, as families, as individuals, understand what it means to be emissaries, to be ambassadors, to be evangelists and sharers and proclaimers, not only with our words, but with our deeds and with our faithful presence to demonstrate to this world that the realm of God is here. We love you. We can't pretend to understand. Lord, like we read with the psalmist today, 
why the stuff that happens in our life does. We can only know. And our hope and our trust and our refuge is in you because we know that whatever pain we're walking through, you're in that pain with us, transforming it. Be with us. We thank you and we love you for you are a mighty God and more importantly, you are a good God and even more importantly, you're a loving God. So help us to be your hands and feet to this world. In the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, do me a favor, uh, greet one another. Maybe not with a holy kiss, it's flu season, uh, but with a fist bump. Uh, And uh, listen, you do not want to miss Earth Sunday uh, next week. And then also, if you're teen in here, you better bring your Nerf guns because it's U.S. versus Canada. Let's get it on and bring it home for old glory. All right. See you guys.